Well, I got to tell you, I am... I fall in love with the Bible over and over again. And I just started this series on 1 Samuel. Just this week, I've been reading through all my commentaries. And I'm saved 48 years. So I've read this story, I don't know how many times. But when I sat down and started actually looking at it in its context and the bigger picture, and it's like, it just starts opening up. I hope I can convey to you guys some of the neat things that's in here. Some of the, God's Word, you never get done reading it. It just gets deeper and richer and deeper and richer. And, and this section of Scripture, you would think, well, what's here? She has a baby, big deal. It's, it's some neat stuff going on here, really. I hope I can bring it out to you. Remember now the background. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Remember, Samuel begins in the time of the judges. Israel was saved from Egypt. They came through the Red Sea. They went to Mount Sinai. They sinned at, at the border of the, Holy, of the Promised Land. They were in the wilderness for 40 years. They finally go into the Promised Land. This is about 50 to 60 years after that. They've conquered the promised land. They're living there. It's during the time of the judges. There's no government. There's no king. They had no king or government. And if you read the book of Judges, they're under constant threat from the nations around them. Constant trouble. Judges is not a happy book. This is the time of Ruth, too. Also, yeah, she lived during this time. Yep. Four times the book of Judges. In fact, the very last verse of the book of Judges, we'll see in a minute, says, In those days there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's not a good thing. That's telling you chaos reigned. Sin reigned. People weren't organized. They were they reunited by covenant through Moses. They reunited because they're all Israelites. But every man just did what was right in their own eyes. They were kind of making it up as they go along. That usually always ends up badly when you're talking about serving the Lord. And we saw last time, I mentioned again, the repeating cycle of the book of Judges. See this over and over again. And I'm going to say all this. We're going to spend some time in Judges. Because I want to show you how dark these days are, so you can get more appreciation of what God is about to do. Of course, they would, they would forget God, fall into some kind of apostasy or idolatry. Then God would send oppressors, nations against them, to, 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 to oppress them, to fight them. Of course, then they would come into captivity. They would cry out to the Lord. They would repent somewhat. And then God would send them a deliverer. He'd raise up someone like Samson or Gideon or Deborah or others to lead them out of their troubles, lead them back to the Lord. They come back to the Lord, they get saved free from their problems, and of course they forget God again, and this thing happened over and over. It's a reading cycle in their lives. That's what, just what's, where they are. Now at this time, in Samuel chapter 1, the, the tabernacle, remember the tabernacle is finished. It was finished 60, 70 years before. They've been carrying it with them all along. But now the tabernacle resides in Shiloh which is about nine miles north of where Jerusalem is going to be. They don't, they don't have Jerusalem yet. Jerusalem is still owned by, by pagans. But the tabernacle is set up at a permanent spot, a place called Shiloh. That's found in Joshua 18, by the way. Uh, it's near Bethel. Now this sets the stage. The book of Judges ends with Israel in sin and failure. It's a very dark book. Israel has sunk very low. Let's look at a few. Just one thing I want to show you. Judges 19. Turn back a few pages past Ruth to the last two or three chapters of Judges. Judges ends on a very dark... It is. It's awful what happens. And this is, this is setting the stage for what's going to happen in Samuel. Judges 19. Let's read a few verses here. We'll get into all the details. It's just what's going on. Judges 19, verse 20. Now there's this guy who kind of sets up his own priesthood, and he's traveling. But Judges 19, 20 says... He comes into a town in, 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 the, in the area where Benjamin resides, the tribe of Benjamin, looking for lodging, right? Verse 20, and the old man said, peace to you, let me take care of all your needs, do not spend the night in the open square. So he took him into his house and gave the donkeys fun. In other words, he takes his stranger in, into his house, it's, it's in the tribe of Benjamin, and, and takes him in for the night. Verse 22. While they were celebrating, behold, the men of the city, certain worthless fellows, surrounded the house, pounding on the door, and they spoke to the owner of the house, the old man, saying, Bring out the man who came into your house that we may have relations with him. They want to homosexually rape this guy. That sounds like law. Like Doesn't it? Like but this is Israel. I know. This is Israel. Let's read on. Then the man, verse 23, the owner of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my fellows, please don't act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not commit this act of folly. Of course, this guy's not real bright. Here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. Please let me bring them out 
that you may ravish them and do to them whatever you wish. But do not commit such an act of folly against this man. But the man would not listen to this man. So the man seized his concubine, brought her out to them, and they raped her and abused her all night until morning, then let her go at the approach of dawn. As the day began, the woman came and fell down at the doorway of the man's house where the master was until daylight. When the master rose in the morning, he opened the doors of his house, went out to go his way, and behold, the concubine was lying at the doorway of their house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up, let's go. But there's no answer. Then he placed her on a donkey, in other words, she's dead. And the man arose and went to his house. When he entered his house, he took a knife, laid hold of his concubine, and cut her into twelve pieces, limb by limb, and sent her throughout the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said nothing like this has ever happened or been seen from the day when the sons of Israel came up. That's a horrible story. Oh my God, yes. It gets worse. That's a horrible story. This is Israel. This isn't Sodom. This is Israel. Well, then when, when these 12 pieces of this woman get sent all throughout the 12 tribes, they get furious, as you would expect. They come against the tribe of Benjamin. There's three wars. The first one they lose, and two more times they attack Benjamin. They eventually win. They destroy, I think it's like 24, 26,000 Benjamites. And what they do is they draw the, Benjamin, the Benjamite soldiers out of their cities, and then some go in behind them and destroy their cities, killing everybody, men, women, children, killing everything. Massive, terrible, brother-fighting brother in Israel, right? But now let's move on. So, so Israel gets outraged, comes back, and fights these terrible wars. Uh, look in chapter 20 now. Drop down to verse 43. They surrounded Benjamin, pursued them without rest. And if you drop down then to, where am I going to go? They, they, they kill them all. 18,000, more thousand. If you add it all up, it's like 20-some thousand Benjamites die. Along with the cities are destroyed, women and the children. But now read this. First chapter 21 is the last chapter of Judges. This is when Samuel begins. Chapter 21. What did I do? Verse 15. Now the people are sorry for Benjamin because the Lord had made a breach. In other words, they killed so many women that there's no wives now for the rest of these Benjamites. They're saying, where are we going to find wives? And the rest of Israel says, we're not going to marry our wives. You can't have our women because of how wicked you guys have been. So what do you think they do? Well, it's real. If this weren't true, it almost would be funny, but it's not. Look at verse 19. So they said to the Benjamites who needed wives, Israel. Behold, there's a feast to the Lord from year to year in Shiloh. Shiloh is where the tabernacle is, right? In other words, all Israel goes up to the tabernacle several times a year. Here's what they tell them to do. Which is on the north side of Bethel, on the east side of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem, on the south side of Lebona. And they commanded the sons of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in wait in the vineyards, and watch. And behold, if the daughters of Shiloh come out to take part in the dances... Then you shall come out to the vineyard, each of you, and shall catch his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. In other words, the old caveman stuff. Grab him by the hair and drag him into the woods. That's what they're telling him to do. Go to Shiloh, where the tabernacle is. When the women come out to do their celebrations and their dances, you see one you like, grab her and run off with her. This is Israel. You know how dark this is? How far they've fallen? How awful this is? That's how fallen Israel is, how messed up they are. And it wasn't all that long ago they came into the promised land. It wasn't only like two or three generations who saw the, what came out of Egypt and all the miracles and all that stuff. Look at where they are. You would think in a terrible time like that, what's going to happen? God's going to have to judge them, but... He did what was right in their own eyes. Exactly right. In fact, notice the very last verse of, of Numbers, or, or of... Uh, Judges, very last verse, says it again. Four times in the book it says there was no king and every man did what was right in his own eyes. And this is what the result of that is. It's terrible times, right? Because they didn't drive out all the wicked of the land. They, they intermarried with them. They, they, they took their gods. They had no one leading them. I mean, they had judges, but they weren't really kings or no structure to it. Now let's turn to 1 Samuel. This is, this is the... This is, the background to where Samuel begins. Samuel takes right over from the end of the book of Judges. And notice how bad it is in, in Samuel's day. We have some hints of this in the first two chapters. Uh, 
Notice it says there in 1 Samuel 1, verse 3, it says Eli. The two sons of Eli. Now, Eli is the judge of this time. He's like the leader, spiritual. He's not a priest, he's a judge. Eli, as you read this section here, is an old man, getting older. He's going to be quite old when he dies. But Eli is, well, I have your sheet there. He's old. He's insensitive. We'll see that here in a minute, the way he, he talks to Hannah. He's very insensitive. He's very kind of spiritually stupid, if I can use that word. He sees Hannah praying her eyes out, and he, he assumes she's drunk and yells at her. That's the kind of guy Eli is. But he's the judge. He's sitting at the, at the doorway to the tabernacle, basically overseeing things. And he has two sons. His two sons are the priests who are running the tabernacle. Let's look at these guys. This is pretty bad. You're in 1 Samuel. Go to chapter 2, verse 12. 1 Samuel. This, this, is, this is Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's two sons who are running the tabernacle. 1 Samuel 2, verse 12 says this. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. Literally in the Hebrew, that's sons of Belial, sons of the devil. These guys were, were devilish, evil men, it says there. They did not know the Lord. Imagine that. These are priests who don't know Yahweh. And they're running the tabernacle. Can you imagine? That's so sad. That's nothing new, by the way, but it's so sad. And just read on. And the custom of the priests with the people. When any man was offering a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. He would thrust it in a pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and all the fork brought up the priest would take for himself. Thus they did in Shiloh to all the... They're stealing food. The priest had a right to some of that food. What they would do is have a big pot. They would bring the sacrifices and boil some of it before the Lord. Instead of offering it like Moses' law commanded, they would take this big like pitchfork, dig it in there, and whatever comes out, they'd keep. You get the kind of idea that, like, well, look, God gave us rump roast today, kind of thing. You also read, we'll get this later, that Eli... The priest was quite overweight. He's, he's eating this meat too. He's living off of this. He does rebuke his sons, but doesn't do any good. But he's living off of this. But read on, it gets worse. 15. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servants would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give the priest meat for roasting, as he will not take boiled meat from you, only raw. If the man said to him, They must surely burn the fat first. And then take as much as you desire. He would say, no, you shall give it to me now. And if not, I will take it by force. Moses' law commanded all the fat had to be burned to the Lord. That's the, the richest portion of the animal. So he, he, they, they would go to these guys and say, look, before you burn that fat, give me that meat. And the guy would say, no, we have to burn it first. He'd say, if you don't give it, I'm going to take it off you by force. Imagine, you're coming to the temple to offer your sacrifice and the priests are robbing you. But it gets worse. Read on. <laughs> yeah. 17. Thus the sin of the young man was very great before the Lord, for the men despised the offering of the Lord. And now drop down to verse 22. Now Eli was very old and heard all that his sons were doing to all Israel, how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Can you, can you get a handle on this? Where Israel is right now? The tabernacle is their center for worship. God is in the holy place in that tabernacle. His presence is there. And they're doing this. These two sons of, of, of Eli, not only stealing off the worshipers, they would pick out their pretty women and go and have sex with them because they're priests. Priests have, can use their authority somewhat. We see a lot of that today, don't we? Yeah. Well, but what an awful thing. And notice here, Eli rebukes them. Verse 23, he said to them, why do you do such things? The evil things that I hear from all these people. They were all going to Eli and complaining about his sons. No, my sons, for report is not good, which I hear the Lord's people circulating. If one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for the Lord desired to put them to death. They got so wicked, God closed their heart. God has determined you guys are going to be destroyed because of what you've done. But that's where Israel is when you read the first verses of 1 Samuel. That's the picture I want to lay out for you. Because that, we understand how dark and evil these days are. Imagine you're a godly Jew living in the land. What are you thinking? 
Oh, Lord, help us. Please, Lord, send us the deliverer. Lord, please. The priests are corrupt. The, the tabernacle's corrupt. The nation's corrupt. Lord, help us, wouldn't you? It was during this dark spiritual time, right here is where 1 Samuel picks up, that the Lord miraculously provides a deliverer. Let's follow this. And it's actually it's going to come in ways no one would ever expect. Let's read the first six verses of chapter 1. And note the language, how it's so almost matter-of-fact here. Now there was a certain man from Ramathaim Zophim, from the hill country of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, Jeroam, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man would go up from this, his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord there. When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters. Peninnah has a lot of children. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord had closed her womb. That sounds familiar too. Doesn't it? Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Just stop there. Notice verse 1. There's a certain man. This guy's a nobody. Now he's, he's, he sounds pretty wealthy. We'll see that in a minute. Whenever in the Old Testament, every time it says, and I was a certain man, it just means there was a nobody. You wouldn't know this guy. It's just some guy. In fact, remember later in the book of Kings when it says, and a certain man shot an arrow into the air and just happened to hit Ahab in the right place in his back. This is just some guy. This, this guy is just some guy. Nobody special, nobody important, just some guys and nobody, just some guy. That's how this, that's how this book starts. It says he's from Ramathaim Zophim. That's probably ancient Arimathea, where, remember, Joseph was from. That's just for your notes. His name's Elkanah. Now, there's a genealogy given here of where he comes from. But there's also one given in, in 1 Chronicles chapter 6. If you put them both together, and I didn't do this, the smart guys in the commentaries did. If you put them both together, this guy's probably a Levite, descendant from Korah, living in, with the tribe of Ephraim. He's probably a Levite, probably. That's the consensus when you put it all together and compare these two genealogies. He's probably a descendant of Korah, a Levite, maybe somewhere in his, in his grandparents or his Ephra Ephraimites as well. But he's, he was living in the, in, in the land of Ephraim. He's probably a Levite. Probably. He had two wives. First one is named Hannah. I love that name. Hannah means gracious. And then the second wife, Peninnah. I should call her Peninnah, but it's actually Peninnah, which means a pearl. Now, well, polygamy was never allowed in God's word. In fact, Genesis 2.24 says, A man shall leave his wife, leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, there'll be one flesh. That's God's law. That's God's rule. But, as you well know, polygamy was commonly practiced by all the nations around Israel. All the nations did it. Israel did too. It was never right. It was never sanctioned. you notice several times in Scripture where it mentions a man with several wives, most of the time, trouble stuff comes from that. Yeah. You ever think about this? He probably, it says he loved Hannah. We'll get that in a minute. But she, had, she was childless. The Lord closed her womb. So he probably married Peninnah to have children with her. And she did. She gave him sons and daughters. Now think about this. Polygamy can't work. Ladies, think about it. How do you think it would work if your husband had two wives? Or three wives? Or four? Is there any possibility you ladies could get along? How would you do that? How would that work? I can't imagine it, can you? I can't imagine it. And by the very nature of marriage, the way God created it, a husband and wife becoming one in everything, eyes only for her. If you have two or three other wives, there would have to be rivalry, wouldn't there? There would have to be jealousy. There would have to be, it's totally against God's design for marriage. It can't work. You know, it can't. And the scripture always downplays it and shows you the bad side of it. But also it says there that Hannah is childless. 
Now, childless, childlessness in ancient times was considered a tragedy for a woman. If you were childless, that was a terrible thing for a woman back in those days. It just was. Having sons was considered vital. Even if you, even if you only had daughters, you were considered somewhat less of a, of a great wife because you only had daughters. Sons were considered vital as they would receive the inheritance. They'd prolong the family name and keep the tribe going. They provide for workers for the fields and all that stuff. They, they, they provided soldiers, and sons were a form of ancient social security. They would take care of you when you got older. Hannah's childless, and in her culture, in her day, that was considered something not good. Many people would think God was judging her. In the Jewish childhood, which came later than this, they actually wrote that a childless woman is as good as dead. That's awful things. That's what, that was their culture. That wasn't true. That was her culture. In fact, childlessness was often seen as a cause for divorce. A guy would marry a wife. She couldn't have kids. He'd divorce her. That was wrong. That was evil. But that's the stigma attached to this, which will explain how, how Hannah feels here. Now, Hannah is greatly loved by her husband. Let's look at verses 4 and 5 again. When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters. What that means is, when you came to the, to the tabernacle for sacrifice, you would also have feasts. You would have feasting. And so he would give a portion of food to Peninnah so she could have this banquet with all her sons and daughters. But notice the next verse. But to Hannah, he'd give a double portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord had closed her womb. Look at verse 8. He tries to comfort her. Then her husband said to her, Hannah, why do you weep, and why do you not eat, and why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? He was trying so hard to love her. That, that phrase, ten sons, who had ten sons? I know you know. Jacob. Am I not better to you than Jacob? Well, it, there's a quote where it had to ten. That's what this is referring to, Jacob's ten, original ten. Anyway... Am I not better to you in ten sons? He's trying to comfort her, but she's not going to be comforted. He loves her. He, he, she has a pretty good husband here, apparently. But it's not enough. Hannah's greatly loved, but it's not enough. Now, notice six and seven. Here's Hannah's problem. Notice verse six again. Her rival, meaning Peninnah, her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. It happened year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her. So she wept and would not eat. There are some powerful words to use here. That word provoke literally means a violent storm. In fact, every other time that word's used in the Old Testament, it means a storm. This is the only place it's ever used of someone. Every other time it describes some kind of violent storm. In other words, this Penina would really give it to Hannah. She would mock her and yell at her and violently insult her and put her down. Probably because she's very jealous. Her husband loves Hannah more than Peninnah. Mm -hmm. But Hannah has no children, so she would mock her. You're not a good wife, and you didn't give your husband sons, and I look at the sons I gave him. That kind of nonsense would go on. It's terrible. And also it says there, notice verse 6, would provoke her, was, is that word for storm, bitterly to irritate her. That word irritate, literally in Hebrew, is vex, vexing. Remember in Hebrew, when you want to make something more powerful, you say it twice. She would vex, vex her. This penina is a piece of work. And she's all over Hannah, and it makes her life miserable. In fact, I have it broken down here. In verse 7, Hannah wept and would not eat. Verse 8 says her heart was sad. Verse 10 says she was greatly distressed. Verse 16 says she had great concern and provocation. This hurt her deeply. Because she wanted to give her husband sons. She loved her husband. And, and the this, this, this stigma of her day was weighing heavy upon her. And that other woman that her husband was married to would make her life miserable. And we've seen that before, haven't we? Yeah, recently. Yeah, we've seen that before. Also with Abraham. There's a lot of, a lot of parallels here. We'll get to that in a minute. Not Abraham. But I, but I was saying, no. Hagar, yeah. yeah. Hagar, Sarah. Note again verse 5 and 6. But to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved her, notice this phrase, but the Lord had closed her womb. 
Verse 6, her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. That phrase is used many times. The Lord opened her womb. The Lord closed her womb. This is important. Birth and death are never just natural processes. God is always the God who decides when people get born and when and how people die. That's not a natural occurrence. You know, mom and dad have sex and they have a kid. No, God creates life. There'd be no life if he didn't create it, Dean. That's exactly right. Every human, every child that is born is because God was heavily involved in it. In fact, look at chapter 2, Hannah's song. She says something here. 1 Samuel 2, verse 6. Hannah has some deep theology here. We'll talk about this when we get there. Chapter 2, verse 6. The Lord kills, get that, and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. That verse right there tells all these prosperity preachers, you are dead wrong. I hate to pick on this guy. There's a guy on the radio Sunday morning who says, God never sends trouble your way. God never sends trials into your life. That's not what Hannah said. He kills. He makes poor. Remember what God said to Moses when at the burning bush? Who makes a man blind or deaf or dumb? Or who makes a man's mouth? Do I deny the Lord? God does this. God is sovereign. And Hannah knows that. The Lord had closed her womb. So notice what she does. Here's why Hannah is such an important woman. We'll see here, and the commentary is pointing, she's probably one of the most important, one of the most godly women in the Old Testament. Here's why. Notice her response. Verse 9, let's read on, starting at verse, chapter 1, verse 9. This is when they go again to the, to the tabernacle. Elkanah takes his two wives for service at the tabernacle. Hebrew men, had, Hebrew men had to appear at the tabernacle three times a year under the law of Moses. Uh, Levites had to appear when they were called for, when they, were, they went through a lottery, when you were called. So we don't know exactly why he's here, but he, Elkanah is a godly man. He observes the sacrifice, he observes the, 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 what Moses said. Now verse 9. They're in Shiloh. They're at the tabernacle. Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. That word wept bitterly, again, is Hebrew. She wept weepingly. It's a double powerful. She's not just weeping. She is weeping her eyes out. She's, she's broken. Yeah, she's broken. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head. Now it came about, as she continued praying before the Lord, that Eli was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart, only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. So Eli thought she was drunk. And Eli said to her, How long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah replied, No, my Lord, I'm a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant a worthless woman, for I have spoken until now out of the great concern and provocation. And Eli answered and said, Go in peace. And may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked him. And notice verse 18. She said, let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Let's talk about this. Hannah is a godly woman. Under great pressure, under great provocation, she's being insulted. This Penina's insults would rip the heart out of her. She couldn't eat. She's crying. In fact, notice it says that she's at the tabernacle. Women, women were not allowed in the tabernacle. But she's probably right in front of it. Eli's sitting there on his chair. He's the judge of Israel. He would keep an eye on things. She's crying her eyes out. Notice that phrase again there. Uh, what verse are you at? 10. Chapter 1, verse 10. It says she, she wept bitterly. She's crying in her spirit. She's not praying out loud, but she's crying. Her lips are moving. She's crying out to the Lord. Now note here, Hannah has a big problem in her marriage. She's broken. Her heart is broken. Her, 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 I don't know what to call it, Penina. It's not her sister. It's her husband's other wife is, is 
constantly picking on her and making her life miserable. But notice, she doesn't complain against God. She doesn't complain to her husband. Remember what, what Rachel did? Give me children or I die. Remember that? She doesn't do anything like that. She doesn't do what Sarah did. Go get a concubine. Or what Rachel did. She doesn't do any of that. What does she do? She pours her heart out in pain before the Lord. Notice the phrase there in verse 9. Then Hannah rose. Now that phrase, again, in the Hebrew means more than just Hannah got up. It means with determination, with... Like, I've had enough. I'm going to the Lord and praying. That's the idea here. She got up determined to do what she does next. She rose. She, she was crying. She wasn't eating. Her husband's trying to comfort her. She's broken. She says, that's it. I'm going to the Lord with this. She, she rose. She got up. She got in her feet and went to, I'm sure, to the door of the tabernacle, right in front of the tabernacle, and starts praying. She poured out her pain before the Lord. Then Hannah rose as a decisive move. Her despair drove her to prayer. And notice, again, verse 10, she prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. That's where you take your pain. I mean, sure, you, you have friends you want to talk to, and counselors and pastors, hopefully, but when you're in pain, emotional, mental pain, you go to the Lord. She did. I'm sure she fell on her knees, and she just, Lord, pray, pouring her heart out, her pain before the Lord. That's a great thing to do. That, and she's a good example of that. She prayed to the Lord. She wept weeping, it says. But notice what else she does. She makes a vow. Verse 11. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me, and not forget your maidservant, but I will give your maid, but you will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord. In other words, if you give me a son, I'll give him to you. That's an amazing thing she's saying. She wants nothing more in the world than a son. She's probably fixated on, I have a son to please my husband, to have a son to take away my stigma. She says, Lord, you give me a son, I'll give him right back to you. Now what she's talking about here is a Nazarite vow. Hannah promises the Lord that if you'll graciously give her a son, she'll put him under a Nazarite vow and give him back to the Lord. It's on your sheet there, a Nazarite vow. Nazarite means to consecrate or to separate. This comes from Numbers 6. It was a vow. Usually they were temporary. You make a vow to the Lord that you're going to do something for him. You're going to serve him some certain way. And to prove it, you would shave your head, refuse to drink any alcohol, and make sure you don't go anywhere near a dead body. In other words, you concentrate, you consecrate yourself to the Lord. Now, sometimes they're for life. She says here, I'll give them to you forever. And she does. She says, you give me a son, Lord, and I'll consecrate him to you to be your servant forever. Uh, a woman could not make a vow unless either her father or her husband said okay. In fact, if a woman made a foolish vow like a child, her husband or her father could annul it. So, so uh, Elkanah knew about this. He was, he was okay with this. Some think Paul in Acts 18, because remember it says he, he shaved his head and then he went to Jerusalem for that cleansing ceremony and that was a Nazarite vow. doesn't say that in Acts, but some think that's what he was doing. But all through the scripture, you have this Nazarite vow. Somebody wants to do something special for the Lord. You go through this time. You don't shave your head and you don't do anything with alcohol. And you Remember how Samson, he was dedicated to the Lord. Remember Samson also. Remember, remember how his parents got Samson? Yeah. Remember? Mrs. Manoah? Remember that? Mm-hmm. Had a visit from the, from the Lord of hosts, mm-hmm. from the angel of the Lord, promising her a baby. We'll get to that. We'll mention that again later on in this study. If I get there. But she, she, she gives this, this child who's, who's not, she doesn't have him yet. She said, if you give me a son, I'll put him under a Nazarite vow and give him right back to you, and, and he'll be yours forever. He'll serve you forever. And note carefully here Hannah's words. This is, good. this is neat stuff. First of all, note she says there, verse, uh, verse 11. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts. Now, I don't know exactly what this means, but... In verse 3, it says that again. This is the first time in the Bible that phrase appears. Now, God's called many things before this. This is the first time you see that phrase, Lord of hosts. This is the first time and only time you hear a woman saying this. She's calling him Lord of hosts. Lord of hosts means Lord of the armies. 
meaning God is Lord of all the armies of heaven. It's a way of saying you are powerful, you are mighty, and no one stops you. It's another way of saying basically God Almighty. She had a very high view of God. This is the first time you see this in the Old Testament. This is the only time you see a woman saying these words. She was a godly woman. Elkanah taught her well. I don't know who her parents were. We don't know. She's taught well in the ways of Israel. She knows the Lord. She really does. And she has a very high view of God. Oh, Lord of hosts. That's a neat. I love that tale. Lord of hosts. Lord of the armies. Captain of the hosts. That's the Lord. But notice next. And this is something that ties this in with the whole gospel narrative, with the whole movement of history and God's saving work. Notice again, verse 11. She made a vow and said, Oh, Lord of hosts. If you'll indeed look upon the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son. Three times she says that word maidservant. In Hebrews, that literally means a, 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 a female slave. Your slave girl. Lord, she has a super high view of God and I'm your slave girl. Where'd you heard that before? Mary. Exactly right. That's the exact same word Mary uses in Greek. Your mates, in fact, I have it here in the Shia, I believe I do. Female slave. Mary said, Luke 138, Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Behold the female slave of the Lord. It's probably, I get ahead of myself, Mary probably knew Hannah well. I'm sure most godly young women in Israel would take Hannah for their role model. We'll see that more in a minute. But she says the exact same words Mary's going to say to the angel when he comes to her and tells her, You're about to get pregnant by the Holy Spirit. She says, Behold, the female slave of the Lord. You may do with me whatever you wish. Hannah here says three times, Lord, I'm your slave. I'll serve you. I'll do whatever you want. That's a godly woman. That'd be a godly man if a man said that. Behold, the handmaid of the Lord. I am your slave, and I will serve you. You, you can do it. I'll bow before your will. In other words, she's saying, if you give me a son, I'll give him back to you. If you don't, I'm in your slave. You can do whatever you like. She bows before his will. That's a powerful thing. And we'll see more of this in a minute, how she parallels Mary. I believe Mary, being a godly young woman, will have Hannah for her hero, as, as probably most godly young Jewish women did. Because Hannah is the most godliest woman in the Old Testament. There are many other godly women. She's just the one that's mentioned. There's many others like this, I'm sure. She's just one that we have a lot of details of. So she's praying, and, she, and picture that. She's praying and crying, and, but quietly. Her mouth is moving. She's probably on her knees, and she's weeping, weep, weeping. She's, she's just bawling her eyes out. Please, Lord. And, and then, again, verse 12. Chapter 1, verse 12. Now it came about, as she continued praying before the Lord, that Eli was watching her mouth. He's sitting there in a chair, probably right at the door of the tabernacle. She's probably not that far away. And he's watching her, and he can't figure this out. He thinks she's drunk. It shows how probably insensitive Eli was. Maybe he's just an old man can't see that well. It, who knows what he's thinking, but you, you would think it would be obvious what's going on here. But he doesn't get it right. He thinks she's drunk. He rebukes her, tells her to put your wine away, get out of here. It's funny, his sons are in the, in the tabernacle doing all kinds of evil. He rebukes this, this godly woman. He mistakes her fervent prayer for drunkenness. And picture that. Hand is probably silently praying, rocking back and forth. Her mouth is moving. Tears are streaming down her face. She's probably a wreck. Her hair is probably down over her face. But then she says, no, my, my Lord, I'm not. And she explains what's going on. So notice again verse 18. She said, let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went away, went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. She didn't leave there crying. She took her burden to the Lord. She cried her heart out. She took her pain to the Lord and left it there. She left there no longer sad. Remember, she says, I'm your maidservant. I'm your slave, Lord. Please give me a son. And Lord, if you do, I'll promise I'll give him to you for all of his life. But Lord, if you don't, I'm your maidservant. And she leaves there and goes home no longer sad. She left her pain with the Lord. She would accept his will. Put a verse here in your sheet from 1 Peter 5, where Paul was on Sunday. Casting all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. That's, that's, a, that's a spiritual skill we need to learn. I need to learn this more. That word casting literally means throwing. Take your anxiety, take your pain, take your fears to the Lord and say, Lord, I can't handle this. I can't fix this. 
Help me, Lord. I'm your servant. And then whatever he does, he does. Leave it with him. That's what she does here. She leaves her pain with him and goes home no longer crying. Now, you know how this ends. Look at verse 19. Then they arose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord and returned again to the house in Ramah. And Elkanah had relations with Hannah and his wife, and the Lord remembered her. It came about in due time after Hannah had conceived, she gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel, saying, Because I have asked him of the Lord. God hears her prayer. Now God sovereignly opens her womb. She gets pregnant and has a son. The Lord remembered her. She conceived. The word Samuel, there's a lot of debate. What exactly does that mean in Hebrew? Pretty much the consensus is it means I've asked of the Lord. But there's many other ways that could be taken. But probably means because she said, because I have asked him of the Lord. She named him Samuel. Which means something like, I asked the Lord. Samuel, the Lord. Now we're going to stop there in the history. But I want to, I want to pull some together and show you some neat things going on here. What she does next though is she tells her husband, I'm not going to bring the boy to the tabernacle until he's weaned, which they say is about three years. We'll get to that next time. She goes to the tabernacle, takes him there. He's about three years old, a little toddler, and leaves him there. And then, at, before she leaves, in chapter 2, verse 1 and following, she sings this song. Let's read this quick. Remember now, last time we saw her at the tabernacle, she's in front of the door crying her eyes out, broken in misery, begging the Lord for aid. But now she has a son. She delivered him to the tabernacle. And now she says this, chapter 2, verse 1. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies. That stupid other wife of his. Because I rejoice in your salvation. There's no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there's no one beside you. Notice her faith. Notice the, the depth of her theology. Nor is there any rock like our God. Boast no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and with him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird on strength. Notice what she's saying here. Those who are powerful and rich and have it all, God honors the weak. God honors the feeble. God honors the nobodies. Verse 5. Those who were full hire themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry cease to hunger. Even the barren gives birth to seven. She who has many children languishes. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he sets the world on them. He keeps the feet of his godly ones. But the wicked ones are silenced in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them he will thunder in the heavens. And note these last three phrases. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and will exalt the horn of his anointed. You could ask Hannah, Hannah, what king? There's no king in Israel. Who's she talking about? There's no king in Israel. Let's, let's talk through this. Let's get the time length. As I said, Hannah is a remarkable woman. She is a godly woman. The Bible never, never shies away from pointing out godly women. Godly women have been used through, all throughout salvation history in many, many ways. And Hannah is a great picture of this. You could title this section here, The Faithfulness of Hannah. First of all, let's look at some of these. She is the godliest woman mentioned in the Old Testament. There were other godly women. We just don't know about them like we do Hannah. Hannah's story is played out for us. We get to see her. She's a woman of faith. She trusts the Lord. She honors the Lord. She honors her husband. She doesn't speak out of turn. She's not, she's not complaining and, and, and grumbling against the Lord. She, she submits to the Lord's will. She's an amazing woman. Her actions are good. Her attitude is good. She's humble. She's submissive. She saw herself as a willing slave to the Lord's will. Three times she says, Lord, I am your woman's slave. You can do with me as you wish. If you give me a son, I'll give him back to you. If you don't give me a son, I'm your servant. That's, that's prayer. That's a woman of faith. 
She prayed in public right before the tabernacle. We have almost no instances of women praying in public. They did. They're there. I mean, Deborah, Deborah was a prophet or a judge back in Judges. They're, they're there. They're just, we don't see them. Here we see one. First she goes to the tabernacle, and she, she's probably right in front of the gate to the, tab, the front curtain of the tabernacle, somewhere out there on her knees praying. Now, they can't hear what she's saying. They can see her. And then when God gives her this son, she comes back about three years later and sings this song, prays this song. And I'm sure she's praying this loudly, with gladness, with joy, right in front of the tabernacle. Imagine her little three-year-old son's there with Eli. Probably, Eli probably has hold his hand. Lord, and she says all these things. So this is a, a godly woman praying right at the tabernacle. She mentions the word Yahweh 18 times, more than any other recorded woman. She loved the Lord. She knew the Lord. She was a godly Jewish woman who knew the Lord. She's more righteous than even barren Sarah. And Sarah was a godly woman. She's held up in, in uh, 1 Peter 3 as a woman that women should emulate. She was a godly woman. But she kind of did some things that weren't right. She caused a lot of trouble. Not the whole Arab world. Yeah. Hannah didn't do that. Hannah waited on the Lord. She's more righteous, you could say, than Rachel was. Rachel grabbed her husband, get me children or I die. And that's, she didn't have that attitude. She honored her husband. She's, she's the only Old Testament woman ever recorded making a vow and keeping a vow. And I'm sure other women did. The law of Moses allowed women to make vows. She's the only recorded instance we have of someone actually doing that. And she, she makes her vow and she keeps it. Women can make vows, but a Nazarite vow was for men. But she could make vows. And I'm sure many women did. It was, it was something you did. Something godly people did. She's the only Old Testament woman whose prayers are recorded like this. And she's the longest. We know more about her prayers than anybody else in the Old Testament. There are other prayers, like you just mentioned Deborah, but her prayers are, are recorded at length. She prays more than anyone else we know in the Old Testament. That doesn't mean other women didn't pray. They did. Yeah, Mary but we have her record. We have this record here of her. In other words, the Holy Spirit wants us to know this. I want to make sure we saw this woman, heard her prayers. And notice here, she gave to the Lord the one thing she dearly desired in her whole life, a son. That, that's almost, how do, you, how, do you, how do you picture it? How do you do that? I want this son more than anything else on earth, Lord. You would think she'd take him home and raise him. He's my son. I gave my, my, my husband a son. She gives him to the Lord. She gives him up. Now, I'm sure she got to see him time to time. They lived about nine miles from Shiloh, as I understand the maps, so they weren't that far away. She gave her son away to Eli to raise for the Lord. That wasn't easy. She kept her word. We hadn't gotten there yet. In, in chapter 1, verse 24 and 25, when she finally weans Samuel and brings him to the tabernacle, she brings an offering. The offering she brings is about three times more than they were required to bring, which kind of tells you Elkanah was probably had some money. But she brings an offering to the tabernacle that is three times more than she's required to do. It shows you her heart, what she's thinking here. And I would submit to you, she appears to be a prophetess. Notice verse 10 again of chapter 2, what she says there. In her song, as she's singing and exulting before the Lord, those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them he will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. And note this phrase. He will give strength to his king. Will exhort, will exalt the horn of his anointed. Of course, that word anointed is the word Christ. When she sang this song, there was no king in Israel. There won't be a king in Israel for another probably 30 years. What king is she talking about? She's saying the Lord is going to exalt his king. And that king is the Christ. That king is the anointed. Now, we don't know how much she knew of that. Why would she say that? Where would she get that from? That's prophetic. She's talking about Christ. And often in the spirit, you say things more than you know. David did this often in the Psalms. As he's praying and singing, he's saying things I don't think he even understood he was saying until he got done with it. That's, that's one of the spirits of prophecy. She, in one sense here, is a prophetess. She's prophesying about the king. Now, of course, this, this refers to Saul and David and the whole Davidic dynasty, but she's talking here about God's anointed She's the first person in Scripture to use the word Christ. A woman. An unknown woman. It's the first time in Scripture you see that word anointed referring to a person. 
Now before this, you see that word all the time in, in, in the Jewish laws about anointing this and anointing that. This is the first time you see a person called anointed, the Christ. Remember, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's what he is. Jesus, the anointed one. Jesus, the Christ. That's who he is. So she appears here, at least in some sense, to be a prophetess. And she is the first person to do so, to anoint the Lord's king and the Lord's anointed, the Lord's Christ. Now, she's a great woman. She's a wonderful example for any woman to look at. But there's more going on here, as I've been hinting at. There's a, there's a correlation between Hannah and Mary, the mother of Jesus. Let's look at some of these. We'll look at the more of this. we get to go through this. Now, Mary, being a godly woman, would know her Old Testament. She knows it well because she, she sings it. Mary would then, like most Hebrew women, look at Hannah as their hero. Hannah is one of the most godliest women in the Old Testament. She's one of the few women they have a whole lot of detail about. If you wanted to be a godly Jewish young girl, you would pattern your life after Hannah. Mary apparently does that because she quotes Hannah. Let's go through this. Because of Hannah's prominence among the godly women of the Old Testament, most, most godly Israelite girls would look at her as a role model. Mary would have patterned her life after Hannah. There's some amazing coincidences between Hannah and Mary. Redemptive history occurs in patterns. Things happen here, and then centuries later it happens again, and then centuries later it happens again. It's all pointing towards Messiah. God has this, God so controls history. You see these like a river flowing. Let's look at some of these. God changed the course of redemptive history. God changed the course of Israelite history. You could say God changed the course of human history through an obscure godly woman. No one knew who Hannah was or Elkanah. Here God is changing the course of human history. God is more specifically changing the course of redemptive history through this obscure... This is just like happened centuries ago with Sarah, an unknown guy, pagan worshiper with a wife, through this, through this obscure couple, God changed the course of redemptive history. God got it started. Here now you're going to see, the, the, because of this woman, because of what God does through this woman, redemptive history is going to start getting more unfolding. Now we're going to see that, that prophecy made about Shiloh and about the, the scepter not departing from Judah and the lion of Judah and, and the, the kingly lion coming from Judah. We're going to see that now because it's all starting with this one unknown woman, uh, almost no, no repute. In times of great spiritual darkness in the scriptures, God often brought a deliverer through an obscure godly woman. You could probably think of several of these if you think about it. It's amazing how God works. In times of great spiritual darkness, he brought a deliverer. Samuel's going to deliver Israel from, her, from Israel's enemies, from, from their, the chaos of the book of Judges. He's going to establish a, a king. A Davidic line, and Samuel, it's going to be some amazing things. Samuel's going to, he's going to be their deliverer. Get him out of this darkness there, at least for a while. He's going to be their deliverer. Notice both Hannah and Mary had miraculous pregnancies. Hannah couldn't get pregnant until God opened her womb. Mary, of course, that's the most miraculous pregnancy there ever was. She was a virgin, and she had a boy. God did that. Again, go back to Abraham's day. Abraham was way too old to have a child. Sarah was way past the age. A miraculous pregnancy. Can you think of any others? Yeah, was it Ruth barren? Ruth went 10 years married before. Her, yeah, her husbands were died. We mentioned one already, Samson. Samson. His parents, I don't know if they had other children. Didn't say they did. But they were promised a child who would be this great deliverer. There's, there's another one, at least one more. Elizabeth. Elizabeth. They were too old to have kids. And God miraculously gave them John the Baptist. One of the commentators, I don't know if this is, this is right, is that God so often works through the surprising birth of a child, the miraculous birth of a child, and you, you can see why Satan must hate children. Because God so often defeated Satan by bringing a small child into the world. God, that, that's God's way of doing Moses. that. Moses, yeah. If you think long enough, there's more of these. It's amazing what God does. One of the reasons why Satan must hate children like he does. Because God often brings deliverance to the birth of a child. Right? Revelation 12. Yeah, the woman gave birth to a child. Yeah, and Satan, Satan hates that child. Good, good reference. Good reference. Let's move on. Hannah's son, 
Samuel, was used to begin the Messiah's dynasty. Samuel's going to be the one who's going to anoint David. So Hannah's son begins the Messianic dynasty. Mary's son completes that dynasty. He is the one. What Samuel started, God through Mary finishes. They're like bookends. It's Hannah and Mary. They're part of this redemptive history story. And who'd have thought? Hannah was a nobody. Mary was a nobody. You'd have never heard of these women. But God picked them because they're, he just was going to work through them. Remember I said last week how God through election is going to do great things in this book? Let's move on. Mary, in Luke chapter 2, we'll get to this next week, Lord willing, when she goes to see Elizabeth, who's, who's already six months pregnant, her, her cousin, remember Elizabeth has John the Baptist in her, in her belly, what happens, remember? He, he, he does his little dance in there. And, 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 and then Mary sings this song, it's called the Magnificat, that's Catholic I guess, but she sings this song. That song closely parallels this song. She basically sings the song of Hannah. Hannah was a barren woman who begged the Lord for a child, and God was merciful to her. And she says, I was nobody, and you shined your greatness upon me. You're the God who exalts the low. Mary says the same thing. Same thing. Mary actually, Mary knew Hannah's prayers. Hannah was probably her, her hero. And they both considered themselves servants of God. Exactly right. They both said that same word. And Hannah here speaks of the Christ, the anointed king, in her prayer, in her song, Mary speaks of her Savior. They both prophetically look ahead of what their child's going to do. Isn't it amazing? Mary calls Christ my Savior. Note how God delivers, how God's deliverance in these cases, in several, all these cases we mentioned, starts out small. No one notices this. No one knows what's going on. There's this little unknown woman, has a son, Gives him to the tabernacle. Who, who, who would have seen this coming? God chooses a woman like Mary. Or Abraham and Sarah. You can go on and on with this. It's just God's way. This is what he does. I have your sheet there. Women of faith play a huge role in redemptive history. They do. They just do. Ladies, you are in the Bible in a big way. And God uses women, godly women, to, to, to accomplish his purposes. Especially in a big flowing movements of salvation throughout the history of the world. God has used women in a powerful way. Don't ever think he didn't. Along with Hannah and Mary, remember Jesus in John chapter 4, we're going to preach that this Sunday? One of the first people he targeted with the news that he's the Messiah was who? A Samaritan woman. The lowest of the low in Jewish eyes. She's one of the first people he revealed himself to. I am he. I am the Messiah. Imagine how a Jewish woman you think he went to march into the palace and announce himself. He doesn't do that. Remember who were the first people to witness the resurrection? The first ones to get it right were the women. Jesus appeared to the women first, and they believed it. The men were so stubborn and stupid, they thought women were babbling. Who listens to a woman? Who knows what a woman has to say? He said that to Jesus on the road afterwards. Yeah. Who was at the cross when Christ was being crucified? Where was Peter? Where was, where was James? I mean, John was there. But who was there? The women. The women were there. Luke mentions how there was a whole cadre of women who followed Jesus around and at their own expense supported him. That means fixing clothes and fixing shoes and making meals. And Some of them were kind of wealthy. They probably yeah. threw some money in for Yeah, food. Joanna was one of them she mentioned of wealth. That's the women. Here you see this again. The whole, the whole flow of redemptive history now is going to take a big leap forward because of this one godly woman. That's neat stuff. And also I would say, I, I, this is a theme of this, as David Morris said, this whole thing is pointing out someone's coming. She mentions it in verse 10, someone's coming. The Lord's king, the Lord's king, the anointed one. Someone's coming. I, I love this stuff. I, 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 I just do. I hope you do too. Christianity this is one thing to raise women up high. The, the pagans never took care of their women, ever. Christianity brought dignity to a woman, to the wife, and to children. That's what God does. Anybody else? But let me bring her back where I start and we'll close. It's such a dark time in Israel's history. Sin and, and just disgustingness is everywhere. Look at that, that stuff we just read from Numbers. And the, the tabernacle is full of degenerates. Un, unsaved, degenerate men are running the tabernacle. And God sends a, a little boy. 
this little boy shows up who's going to turn this all around for a while anyway. That's just how God works. Let's close in prayer. Father, we marvel at what you do. Lord, you can do through history. It's just amazing. And you have a goal. And you steadily plot on towards that goal. You have said way back in Genesis, you would send a champion to undo what Satan did. And all throughout the long ages, Lord, we see in your word how you brought that about. And you, you patiently worked through the, through the many, many years and through people who were nobody and people who were powerless. And Lord, no one could pull this off, but you did it through weak and broken people. Lord, we thank you for this story in Samuel. We thank you for women like Hannah, Lord. Help us to always honor and, 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 and praise our godly women, Lord. And thank you, Lord, for what you do through godly women. Lord, where would we be without them? But Lord, we thank you that you can take nobodies people who are hurting and broken and in pain and do wonderful things. And we thank you, Lord, that all of this is leading towards the Christ, towards the day when the Messiah would come and, and bring salvation to your people. Lord, thank you. This is, this is exciting stuff. And Lord, you are still ruling history. You are still working through the nations. Lord, this story isn't over yet. And we thank you for what you do. But Lord, thank you for your son, the king, the Christ, whom these early days foreshadow. We thank you for him. We thank you for this study in Jesus' name. Amen.